So, Dan, thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to be here, and I, I want to commend you on your important work on BDS. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge a few people who are here, friends, uh, Malat Tabori and Erwin Kotler actually involved in ISGAP, and I appreciate all the efforts you're doing for, for ISGAP. Um, Gideon Bahar, Bahir from uh, the Global Forum, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who I have the honor to work with in the working groups. Um, Glenn Feder is here, and he's a, a fellow. He's a fellow, the entire, everybody's going to be uh, acknowledged. So Glenn Feder is a research scholar, senior research scholar at ISGAP, and he's running the ISGAP um, program at the Sorbonne and the CNRS in Paris. And Glenn helped a lot to, uh, with this research that we're doing on the BDS at ISGAP. Um, so I would like to start, in a sense, what we're trying to do at ISGAP is to put all of these issues into an analytical context and to try to understand processes of anti-Semitism in the age of globalization. And I would argue that it's very important to understand power dynamics and economic, social, and cultural processes which are happening at a rapid rate through processes of globalization. And there's a difference between, I think, looking at global anti-Semitism as a descriptive exercise and looking at anti-Semitism and globalization, or the globalization of anti-Semitism. Very briefly, uh, anti-Semitism can be broken down into three categories. I'll be very quick. There was a religious phase, a biological, and a sort of a racist phase of anti-Semitism. And today, contemporary anti-Semitism has its focus on attacking Jewish notions of peoplehood. So very briefly, when the dominant perspective of perceiving reality was through the lens of religion, the Jews were the wrong religion. And what Professor Kotler said, which is so true, is that what makes anti-Semitism different than other forms of hatreds, I would argue, and I know Irwin argues, is its genocidal component, its inherent genocidal component. So not only were Jews the wrong religion and blinded by evil for not accepting the Christian notion of the Messiah, but world redemption was somehow hindered and bound up in the redemption of the Jew. So the Jew had to be transformed and civilized to save the world. And this is the inherent genocidal aspect of anti-Semitism. When the dominant perspective of perceiving reality was through the lens of nation and race and biologically determined worldviews, the Jews were the wrong race and the Jews were the wrong nation. And in order to save the race and the nation, the Jew had to be removed. So no longer was the the out was conversion, but this time the Jew had to be exiled or slaughtered, and this culminated in the Holocaust. By and large in the West, these forms of religious and racial forms of anti-Semitism are passé. If you mention this in the Ivy League universities or in Oxbridge or in the Sorbonne or in the New York Times or even at a cocktail party, you'll be removed from the room. But, and this is the but, Contemporary anti-Semitism is focusing now on Jewish notions of peoplehood, the self-determination of Israel, the self-determination of the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and the connection of Jewish people in the diaspora to Israel, that this is the onslaught of contemporary anti-Semitism. And I dare say, again, there's an inherent genocidal component to it. And you can see people among the radical Islamists and even among the postmodern 
left in the quotations, whatever that means today, stating that if only the stubborn Israelis, the stubborn Jews would change their policy or change, jihad would disappear, there would be peace and world uh, harmony would break out if it wasn't for these Jews changing their religion, changing their ways. So this is what I think the panelists are, are pointing to is contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. And through the BDS movement, we're rapidly seeing there were some in the diaspora, particularly liberals in the United States, that tried to distance themselves from Israel, from Israeli policies, from the right of the Israeli political spectrum, from the religious, and saying that we in the diaspora were somehow different than these Israelis and the policies of the Israeli government. But we can see through the universities in particular and through the BDS movement, the demonization of Israel has now come to American, North American, South American, and European campuses. So any students who are affiliated with Jewish groups or Jewish cultural organizations are often tarred as part of this uh, problematic group, sort of connected to the racist colonial Nazi-like entity, the Zionist entity in Israel. So we see diaspora communities rapidly coming uh, victimized, if you will, by this sort of onslaught of the BDS movement. But what I would like to try to, to do is to put into context what is happening through processes of globalization. So globalization as a process brings people together as never before through telecommunications, technology, travel, the trade of goods and services. People have never been so close, perhaps in the history of humanity and business and commerce and trade um, sort of speeds up. Investment could be done by the click of a button. People travel uh, one or two generations before us. Scholars would never travel overseas at the rate that we do. And we, through the internet and telecommunications, we may have more friends thousands of miles away uh, than we do in our neighborhood. But at the same time, as globalization brings people together, the sort of the top of the culture, it also marginalizes and divides as, n as never before. And there's a notion of the time-space compression. The more time and space and the faster you go, the more you're on the um, giving end the, of, of globalization. And the more that you're stuck in time and space, stuck in locality, moving at slower paces, you're on the receiving end, the nasty forms of globalization. And we see an increase in marginalization, economic and social marginalization, as modern nation, nation states, particularly in the Middle East and other parts of the world, begin to fail. People with aspirations, mod, modern uh, notions of aspirations of economic development and integration and advancement, those dreams of the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s have been crumbling, I would argue, in part because of neoliberal policies. And as this dream of modernization and citizenship dissipates as the states are weakening, now we have a vacuum of radical political Islam and other reactionary movements filling the space that the state once occupied economically and certainly ideologically. So on the one hand, we have in this globalizing moment the rise of radical political Islam, which uses genocidal anti-Semitism as a core element of its ideology. It's a way that they are garnering support, but it's also, we have to give credence that it's a well thought out worldview. 
It's rooted in a theology, a perversion of a theology, of a political philosophy, of, of policy, and of military strategy. Anti-Semitism has been an effective tool to mobilize radical political Islamists, not only in the Middle East, but as we're seeing, and I think we need to pay very close attention to this, in the West. This contemporary anti-Semitism is being received, it's almost, you know, they say when you used to smoke and people stop smoking, you still have sensors in your body that people who were once smokers, if you take one or two cigarettes, you'll get hooked again because you're predisposed to uh, being addicted. So I think, in a sense, we also have to take into consideration the deep, rich history of anti-Semitism in the West. And there was an assumption by many of us that after the Holocaust, the West learned their lesson and that somehow anti-Semitism died or disappeared. But we are now seeing that forms of hatred are deeply rooted in society, deeper, deeply rooted in, in, in philosophy, in institutions, in cultural symbols. And this BDS, the, the anti-Semitism emanating from the Islamic world and being received into Europe and North America is not coming to deaf ears. There's a, there's a traction that's happening. So on the one hand, you have radical political Islam. On the other hand, in the West, we're in this sort of postmodern moment. And in postmodernity, notions of good and evil are passé. Um, hybrid identities, uh, relative narr narratives that are perceived as relative, that all narratives have a place in the spectrum that need to be heard and understood. So all narratives are somehow equal, regardless of the ideology behind it. The interesting thing, the interesting thing about uh, radical reactionary Islam or Islamism and postmodernity, there's an element that is both anti-Western hegemony, and there is some sort of ideological and even political at times uh, commonality. In fact, Edward Said and Michel Foucault, two important founders of sort of the post-colonial and postmodern moment, perceived the Iranian Revolution as something akin to the French Revolution and Enlightenment. Michel Foucault visits Iran in 1978, uh, spends a lot of time in Paris, as did Edward Said in the late 70s, and both very important intellectual figures give credence to the, to the Iranian Revolution, not, uh, I'd say, focusing on its excesses, on its anti-Semitism, on its uh, sexism, and all the sort of the reactionary ideology, but they perceive this as potentially a liberating movement. So you have this sort of post-colonial, post-modern moment, particularly at the best academic institutions in the West and in the media of record. And I think now we're beginning to witness, in terms of policy, the graduates of these best universities, the graduates of this high education, are moving into positions of power. And I think we have to be honest, and we have to, I think, go back, I would argue, and look at President Obama's speech in Cairo. President Obama embodies um, the best Western education you can get. And he was a student of Edward Said and Khalidi, and he comes out of this sort of moment. And when he goes to Cairo, one of the first things he does is invites the Muslim Brotherhood to sit as honored guests at his feet in Al-Azhar University. Interestingly, as a footnote, the, the Muslim Brotherhood has deep roots in, American, in the American Academy. 
It also has deep roots in American society. More than 80% of mosques that have mor mortgages in the United States, the mortgages are owned by the Muslim Brotherhood. And this is some of the research that Glenn Fetter and I are doing together. So the roots are old. A lot of the exiled Egyptian uh, Muslim Brotherhood people ran away from Egypt and found refuge at American universities. And there's a whole network that goes back to those times. I think that in a sense, with the Cairo speech and with the agreement with Iran, um, we see, um, you know, Gerald is speaking about how the European Union is subsidizing BDS movement by almost 100 million euros. The question that I have is how much will the P5 plus one subsidize the Iranian revolutionary regime's involvement in the world and the promotion of its anti-Semitism. So in a sense, we, I think I would argue we have to get our heads around the fact that it's actually the West and the Western democratic countries that have now legitimized the, the Iranian revolution and its ideology by entering into an agreement. If you've noticed, uh, many Western leaders have a very difficult time speaking about contemporary anti-Semitism and naming it. Um, which is part and parcel of the process that's gone on and the ramifications of the agreement, which is uh, a lot to do with trade and commerce and, and, and that sort of thing, which globalization and the process of a globalization um, reflect upon. The Muslim Brotherhood and other, the, the Iranian lobby uh, have, uh, have had access to the White House and to other uh, institutions of power in the United States and in Europe, and this needs to be understood. Um, and I also think, and this is, and, and I'm trying to be cautious, but as we mentioned earlier, as Professor Kotler mentioned earlier, the, the attacks in Charlie Hebdo and at the kosher supermarket on the eve of Shabbat, where the American government did not emphatically state that Mr. Koulibaly, the murderer in the kosher market, actually targeted and assassinated people because they were Jewish, and that Koulibaly was part of a global reactionary Islamist anti-Semitic movement, that at the core of this murderer's ideology was genocidal and is genocidal anti-Semitism, and to say this in the United States of America today is problematic. I'd also, we also, in terms of decoding uh, ideology and discourse, the discourse of anti-Semitism in the contemporary context is very important. And it also creates uh, sort of the atmosphere and the context in which we're operating. And when the President of the United States uses words um, like um, moneyed lobbyist, crazy, and other deeply disturbing tropes. I think that we need to really speak out, but we also have to understand the implications of this language. And I can't imagine any world leader using similar tropes, similar deadly tropes, that would be sexist or homophobic or, or racist and get away with it. But this is what's happening. This is what's happening on an increasingly frequent basis. And the question is, I would say, is that in the United States of America, where democracy is largely and deeply entrenched, the rule of law and the institutions and the Constitution are deep, and I think the, this 
form of hatred will be weathered. But then the question is, this type of discourse and rhetoric, what are the implications on global anti-Semitism? What happens in the suburbs of Paris when they hear the President of the United States saying these things? The 1% versus the 99%. The money lobbyist undermining democratic uh, processes. What are the implications of the suburbs of Paris? What are the implications at the best universities and the media of record? And the discourse is, I would argue, shifting rapidly. And this is the context that we now find ourselves. And I think that, in a sense, I don't want to sound too depressing, but I think this is the beginning of a real storm. And the recipe, it's almost like a curry. All the spices are on the table and the fire has been struck. Um, in terms of the BDS, I, I'm going to try to share with you a very short story. Um, as, I was, as some of you know, and as Dan mentioned, I was running a research center on anti-Semitism at Yale. It was the first research center at an American university on the study of anti-Semitism. I have time? A couple of minutes, okay. Um, and to make a long story short, we were there for five years. It was a vibrant center, and we were closed. We were closed down. And for the first time in the history of Yale, as far as I know and Professor Alan Dershowitz know, the academic review committee's report was deemed classified, and none of the scholars or philanthropists or administrators associated with the center know for sure why it was closed. And this is where I think the BDS, I, I don't have a background in uh, this type of research. I do social theory and anti-Semitism, but I found myself and 14 of my colleagues out of a nice university. So by coincidence, um, a few years later, while I was finishing an article at Palo Alto at Hoover in a beautiful little town in California, I finished an article about two in the morning and I was very happy that the article was finished, but I was too wired to go to sleep, so I started Googling. And I remember there was a young, a young man named Charles Hogan. Charles Hogan is an Anglo-Saxon guy from Connecticut who was the vice president of Yale. And I Googled him, and I started to find these very strange links on the internet, which kind of freaked me out. <laughs> but uh, thanks to some colleagues, we started to do some research. And basically, Charles Hogan worked for a man named Khalid bin Mufaz, who is a major multi-billionaire, owns all sorts of companies, including pharmaceutical companies. Now, bin, uh, bin Mufaz, Mufaz, you're right, sorry, Mufaz, excuse me. He's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and if you remember, he sued um, Yale University Press over Matthew Levitt's book on Hamas. Pardon me? Right, and, and, and Rachel Ehrenfeld, correct. And intimidated her quite well. Um, what's interesting is that three months after Mafuz dropped the lawsuit against Yale University Press, Charles Hogan became the vice president of Yale. Charles Hogan was the vice president of the pharmaceutical company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Mr. Bin Mufaz was his boss. So that was one interesting connection. Um, so, and Mufaz is suspected of being linked with various terrorist funding schemes 
and also reappears behind the scenes in another scandal, which, uh, which is about Yisa. Now what's interesting, when Charles Hogan came to Yale, he hired a woman named Aletta Wegner. Aletta Wegner worked in international programming and it was uh, Charles Hogan's right-hand man. Now what's interesting is that Wagner, before she worked at Yale, was a State Department official under the Clinton administration, and she was running the scheduling and the workings of a Mr. Abdul Rahim Al-Amudi in the Gulf. So Al-Amudi has been convicted of supporting terrorism and has been imprisoned. And this was, Ms. Wagner was, that was her, her boss. Wagner's husband, Bassam Franji, is closely involved with anti-Israel activism in the United States and is a supporter of Hamas and Hezbollah. Now, this is the tip of the iceberg. Glenn and I are doing all kinds of research and I, I have no time to get into this. But we know through the BDS movement, it's not only the demonization of Israel and anti-Semitism, but there's been a concerted effort by some Saudis and Qataris and others, and even the Iranians, in sort of, I would argue, buying America, buying universities and the media of record, and now they're even buying law firms, major law firms in the United States. So this is a, a serious moment that I think we need to also investigate deeply into these international links. And the interesting thing about the United States, I think the United States is a free market system so unlike social democracies in Western Europe that the state has to report on their funding and there's more easy access, I'd say, or some easier access, some easier access to information than in the United States where there's a free market system and it's easier to donate and to move funds. And this is the tip of the iceberg of what Glenn and I found. And I would submit to you that if Glenn and I found this, you know, I don't want to sound too humble, but uh, if we can find this, I think it's of great, great importance that people who have the expertise in this area uh, begin to do or do the research and to expose it in sophisticated ways. And I think one of the things that small NGOs like ISGAP and others is that we're all, we're all fighting for recognition, we're all fighting for funding. And I think that in a sense that we're really, we're really at war and we have to work together, and there are times when this information should be released in a sophisticated way. And I, and I think that there are liberals and there are people who are not tarred and branded in a certain way that we all know is anti-Semitic and problematic, but sometimes I would argue that it's okay to take our logo off some of the reports and give it to journalists and give it to people who care to run with stories and make these issues more mainstream because in a sense, as we all know that anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never ends with Jews. And this reactionary social movement is anti-democratic, it's anti-citizenship, it, it's diametrically opposed to what people who care about democracy and civil rights are all about. And that this is a war on democracy, and there's been a concerted decision and effort made to use anti-Semitism as a way to usurp Western hegemony in, in the West and the Islamic world, and also to defeat it in its home territory. So this is a war against democracy, and anti-Semitism is just a tool in the weapon of the anti-Democrats. Thank you.